0: Praise the Lord for the word sung. And now we'll hear it preached, read. If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word. Philippians chapter 3. I will read the entire chapter. So if for any reason it is difficult for you to stand for that entire time, feel free to be seated. I should have said that first. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Now, brethren, let us hear God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue All things unto himself. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. And let us pray. O gracious and glorious Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you have given us heavenly things, glorious things, weighty things, real things to think about this morning. Oh, Lord, we have filled our minds with such such trinkets, such toys, foolish things, vain things, light things, meaningless things. Take them out of our minds. Cleanse us of them. Oh, Lord, we are worthy that Paul should weep over us if we mind earthly things. Oh, turn our minds to Christ this morning, we pray. Lord, help us to see the vanity of confidence In the flesh. Our Father in heaven, oh, do a mighty saving work this morning. Do a sanctifying work. Lord, those who know you, strengthen their faith in you. Those who know you not, meet them this morning, we pray. Oh, living Christ, speak to them. We pray for those who are not with us, Lord, especially our pastor and his dear wife, strengthen them, heal their bodies. Encourage them. Refresh them. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Here in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, the very first part of the chapter, a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday, we observed that Paul commands the Philippians and us to rejoice in the Lord. Paul thinks that this duty of rejoicing in the Lord is so vital and central to the Christian life that he makes it the primary emphasis for this closing section of the book. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is for their spiritual safety. Paul says, to write these same things to you indeed to me is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And then he unfolds through the chapter, Philippians chapter 3, he unfolds various threats to that joy in the Lord as well as the primary ways in which we are to rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 3 is all about rejoicing in the Lord. So verses 2 through 3 tell us that those Jewish teachers who insisted someone had to be circumcised and keep the law before they could become a Christian are threats to rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in fleshly righteousness violates the pure gospel and makes a man a dog and an evil worker. That's what he calls them there in verse Beware of dogs. I like saying it that way. Verses 4 through 11, which will be our focus this morning, tell us that rejoicing in the Lord means having confidence in Him. But not just some confidence in Christ. All our confidence must be in Him. We must reject every other confidence, every other trust, and pursue knowing Christ. He must be our all in all. Moving on from there in the future, if God wills, We might look at the later verses at some other time, but verses 12 through 14, Paul tells us that rejoicing in the Lord means continuing on toward glory, pressing forward, pursuing the prize to the end, not giving up. Some start and don't finish. Verses 15 through 21, at the end of the chapter, Paul tells us that the battleground for rejoicing in the Lord is our mind. You either have a fleshly, earthly mind or a spiritual mind. So as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and in that, those three verses, he tells us that because of Christ's work in us by his Spirit, we are the true circumcised of heart, the regenerated, the real circumcision. We're the real Jews rejoicing in Christ Jesus, loving him with all our heart, soul, and strength. And now rejoice in the Lord, not in some mark in your flesh, some earthly attribute that you have. Today we're going to move from verse four toward verse 11 and 12, although we won't cover all the ground. And verse four, and this section that we're in, he, Paul emphasizes that we should reject all confidence in the flesh and put our confidence in Christ. Verse three leads into our section where he says, "We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh." Confidence. In the flesh. Confidence in the flesh is a fool's errand. Our fleshly religious credentials might get us approval from our fellow men, our religious peers, but no righteousness on God's account. Our worldly credentials, not our religious ones, but our worldly ones of money, fame, more pleasure, more goods, more status than somebody else will only get us momentary satisfaction and will leave us empty. Confidence in the flesh chased Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's paradise. Confidence in the flesh gave birth to Ishmael when Abram should have waited for Isaac. Confidence in the flesh led to wandering 40 years in the wilderness instead of enjoying the promised land by God's miraculous power. Confidence in the flesh is trusting man's power instead of God's. It is idolatry, it dishonors God, and he will fight against it. God will not leave your flesh confidence to stand. It will fall, either now or in the day of judgment. Paul tells us here that confidence in Christ, and as we'll see, union with Christ, is worth so much you'll want to throw away everything else and trust in him alone. What is this idea of confidence? What is confidence? Trust or reliance It's an expectation that what we trust in will prove reliable, satisfactory, or provide a particular benefit. And here Paul uses it in an ultimate and absolute sense. He's dealing with the question, what should you put your ultimate, absolute confidence in? What will prove reliable in the big question of life? What will prove reliable, satisfactory, and beneficial for your ultimate good? That's what confidence is, trust or reliance. What is the flesh? Because he says we have not confidence in the flesh. Well, the flesh is man's achievements, my achievements. And flesh doesn't necessarily mean something evil here. Sometimes Paul uses the word flesh to mean our sinful nature. But here it doesn't necessarily mean something evil. It means something earthly, something physical, something carnal, something spiritual, but that's simply the action of our mind, our works, our thoughts. Human activity, physical activity, spiritual activity, but it's ours, our activity. Paul is telling us in this, in this section, Philippians 3, 4 through 11, that nothing in this world must become our ultimate absolute trust and confidence. Nothing religious, nothing carnal, nothing spiritual, nothing physical, nothing. All your confidence must be in Christ and Christ alone. We were created for God, to know God, to live in God, to live for God. God was to be our ultimate goal, our ultimate good. It is idolatry, a great sin, to make anything else in this world great to us, to make it as if it were as great as God, as good as God, as reliable as God, as worthy of our confidence as God. But Christ, who was in this world, is God. And it is perfectly right to make him our ultimate hope and confidence and joy and strength, our greatest good. And that's what Paul will tell us to do here. So my first major point is follow Paul's example in rejecting all confidence in the flesh. And there are two major categories of confidence in the flesh, religious and fleshly. Both are fleshly, but we're using flesh here in a slightly different sense, worldly. So there's religious and worldly confidences. And first he deals with those religious confidences. Paul had greater religious advantages than anyone else. Look at verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, The tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted counted loss for Christ. Paul was the most likely candidate in the world to get by with relying on fleshly religious deeds. Circumcised the eighth day. God had told the Israelites, like Paul, to be circumcised. In Genesis 17, God had commanded the patriarch Abraham that he and his covenant family were obligated to do this sign of God's covenant, circumcision. But no physical action is effective in making people holy, pure members of the community of God's covenant. God's prophets throughout the Old Testament had severely reproved Israel for their uncircumcised hearts while their bodies were circumcised. Never put your confidence in God, before God, in physical, external activities or experiences. Being baptized, joining a church, going to meetings, reading your Bible, praying, all of those are important activities, but they give you no favor in the sight of God. He says here, verse 5, of the stock of Israel, Israel was the most favored family in the world. God would make Abraham's descendants great and blessed and to be a blessing. Saul of Tarsus had been born from this blessed line, but that was an earthly birth, a fleshly privilege. Like Paul says in Romans, there was an advantage to being a Jew. It was that you were among the community that had God's word. You had the word of God. But no earthly birth can give a spiritual heritage directly. Before he met Christ, Paul had confidence that he was a natural-born heir to the best family in the world. He didn't know that one day he would lose that confidence. But as soon as he met Christ, he said, no more confidence in being a Jew of the stock of Israel. It's a great privilege. It's one of the best earthly privileges, but it's nothing worth putting confidence in before God. And here, young people, children, those of you who are here, maybe like me, you were born in a Christian family. A faithful and diligent family, your dad and mom might have taught you God's word and trained you in walking in God's ways, that is a great blessing. It's a wonderful gift. It gives you great advantages. But they are earthly advantages unless God does a mighty work in you by his spirit. Those advantages include hearing the word of God, being preserved from great sin. I can only imagine the terrible sins that I would have fallen into if my dad and mom had not been faithful in protecting our home. And they did. And that was a great blessing to me, but that will give me nothing before God. That will give me no clout on Judgment Day before God. Being born and raised in a Christian home will not give you any ground of confidence before God. Don't rest any of your hope in your parents or your upbringing or your good behavior, your good training. Rest your soul on the living Christ who hears and answers the cries of sinners who cry out to him. Hallelujah. Next, Paul says, there in verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a prominent tribe. Famous people came from her. Think of King Saul, who Saul was probably named after, Saul of Tarsus. When he was called Saul of Tarsus, he probably was named after King Saul. And claiming membership in the tribe of Benjamin gave a little aristocratic flair to Paul. But also, the reason why he appeals to it is probably because he's indicating he had a genuine and verifiable genealogy. As a Jew, he's not like some of the Jews you meet today who say, hey, I'm a Jew. And you're like, well, you know, can you trace it back? Well, no, but you know, somebody said in my family that there was somebody related to somebody who was a Jew. If you could prove what tribe you were a part of, then you were a real Jew. Paul is saying, I had credentials. I was the real deal. That's great, Paul. You could feel good about yourself before God. No, no confidence in being a genuine, verifiable, demonstrable Jew. And then he goes further. He says, "An Hebrew of the Hebrews. And here, because of how we use the language, we might not recognize what's happening here. He moves from the nation of Israel to a word that probably signifies more of a cultural and linguistic emphasis. So likely he's saying, I was culturally and by my language a Hebrew. Now in those days, many of the Jews had been, of course, deported to other countries when Babylon and other countries had come in and taken over Israel. And so some of the Jews had lost their ties with Palestine. So they began to speak other languages. Some of them spoke Greek and they're mentioned in the King James as the Grecians, modern translation is maybe the Hellenistic Jews. Paul is saying, I wasn't one of those. My family, we kept the Hebrew traditions, and we spoke Hebrew. We were real culturally and linguistically. We were conservative. We were conservatives of the conservatives. We were those who could really say we are the real thing.'" he was genuine, orthodox, conservative adherent of the original forms and customs. But he says no confidence in that before God. As touching the law here, he says at the end of verse 5, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now we all like to identify with some group or another. It might be a really tiny group, but we'll find the one that scratches our itch and we'll put their flag up on our flagpole. Well, Paul's group was the Pharisees. They were the most careful to apply every minute detail of the law of Moses. He wasn't just a sympathizer with the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. He was a card-carrying member, if you will. It was hard to qualify as a Pharisee. And he was in. He was the cream of the crop. If someone challenged Saul, are you a law-abiding Jew, he would just have to say, I'm a Pharisee. They would know all questions answered. You are the real deal. Paul found the most strict religious group he could, and he signed up. He got on board. But here he says, I let it all go. I put hard-earned Phariseeism on the dung heap. I threw it on the compost pile. I found something better. Christ. Christ. Verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now remember, this is his list of qualifications by which he might say, well, if anybody could boast in the flesh... I'm more. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, oh, he wasn't a reluctant, half-hearted rule keeper. He was on fire. He was a zealous Pharisee. He didn't only keep the law himself, but he wanted to make sure everybody else did, and especially those heretical Christians. He wanted to call them, take them to task, and deal with them. Paul says, now I look back, and I see all of that zeal as a waste of time. It was sin. It was loss. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Before Paul was rescued by the Lord Jesus, he was not only a member of the sect called the Pharisees, but he was a zealous, careful, cautious keeper of the law. He practiced what he preached. And it's good to practice what you preach if you preach what's good. And This was God's holy law. And as Paul looked at God's law, he was careful and scrupulous in keeping of it. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, and he'll tell us again in Philippians 3 as well here in our chapter, that this righteousness from the law is a hopeless pursuit. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So Paul says, no confidence in that righteousness either. No confidence in the flesh before God. My friends, what do you have confidence in before the living God? Paul takes all this time to tell the Philippians and us his high credentials and how he counted them loss, so that we can be ashamed to ever even attempt it. Where do you stand up to in relation to Paul? We should never put our trust in anything so rotten, so unstable, so vain, so foolish as our own religious accomplishments before God. For Christ, Paul counted all of his loss, damage, a valueless waste of time. Do you have anything that you are resting in before God? Count it loss. Let it go. Give it up. Trust in Christ alone. And Paul tells us that's what he did. In verse seven, he says, "But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And he puts it in the past tense, "I counted loss." In the next verse, he'll put it in the present tense. But here he puts it in the, in the past tense. I counted it lost. It includes his past Christian experience and probably mostly his conversion. All his achievements had gotten him up to favor with the chief priests. And you can see him you know, out there. He's on his way to do more celebrity work for Judaism when he'd reached the pinnacle of his, his greatness before men. He's going to arrest all those heretic Christians in Damascus who follow the despised prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Look at him on that horse on his way to Damascus. And I don't know what his his entourage, the group of people that were with him, looked like, but I can see him at least in kind of a poetic way with all of his flags flying. He's got all this great stuff. He's got high credentials. He knows he's great stuff. And all the men that are with him know he's great stuff and that he'll make a real name for himself. Does that sound like what you want, what I want, to be great stuff? But all of a sudden, a light from heaven comes down and strikes him off of his high horse, and Saul is laid in the dust on the road. All his credentials are nothing in God's sight, and a voice of glory booms forth. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The man lying on the dusty road is now empty, dirty, hopeless, and blind, literally blind. And all he can manage to say is, who art thou, Lord? Not, look at me. Why did you knock me off my horse? Why am I in the dirt? I'm supposed to be wearing a spotless white robe of Phariseeism. Why am I in the dirt? No, he says, who are you, Lord? From that moment on, that proud man was a humble man. The self-righteous man saw his utter sinfulness. The holier-than-thou man saw his filthy sins. Saul of Tarsus, that great religious celebrity, died that day. And he rose again to walk in newness of life. After the Lord left him in a grave of blindness for a few days. That's what his baptism represented when Ananias dipped him in water a few days later. Dying with Christ, rising again in him. So on the day of his conversion, Saul entered a new life. Saul of Tarsus, after his conversion, counted all his former gains as losses, emptiness, meaningless wastes of time and energy. Now he loved Christ, He was confident in Christ, the one who knocked him off his horse, took away everything he had, and said, all you have is me. Amen. Were you baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? What did it mean? Did it mean death to your old righteousness? And did it mean life and his righteousness? Did it mean for you that now you count all your gains as lost for Christ? If you're a Christian today, all your religious achievements and credentials did not help you get there. You might feel like waving them like a flag, but remember that flag is only dirty rags in heaven's sight. What do repentance and faith mean to you? When you repented of your sins and trusted in the Savior, did you lose your own righteousness? Did you drop all your credentials before God? Did he become your all in all? Did, did Christ become all your righteousness, all your confidence? Or did conversion to you mean becoming a better person? Oh, it's a sad thing that I heard a few, a few months ago. I think it was. I was talking to someone about their soul and they said, yeah, I know, I need to get right with God and become a better person, something like that. No, it's not about becoming a better person. Sure, it's a good thing to want, but it's about leaving everything and following Christ, dropping all of your righteousness and trusting in Him and living for Him. The world might not think you're a better person. They might think you've just been ruined and that you're worse than you ever were before, but you love Christ. Did your conversion mean becoming more acceptable to the world and liked by all around you? Maybe you just got rid of some of the bad habits that got in your way of being a great person. Was it just a self-improvement project? If it was, your conversion was not a conversion. And it is doomed for failure and eternal disaster. Conversion for Paul was like death. All he was came to an end. All that came after him, after that conversion, was in Christ. In Christ. Now in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. If you trust in your religious activities and good works, you're trusting in a platform of rotten wood. You're trying to climb to heaven by a rotten breaking rope. Trying to make Christianity work without the living Christ is a doomed project. Give it up. Run to the living Christ. Amen. Trust in him. Cry out to him that he would take away everything of you and give him yourself. Give him him give you himself. You need him. You need him. But not only did Paul count everything loss in verse 8, I'm sorry, in verse 7, he says, those I counted loss for Christ. In verse 8, he puts it in the present tense. Yea, doubtless, and he not only puts it in the present tense, he universalizes it. He absolutizes it. At first, we were looking at his religious qualifications, but now he he throws in the all word. Verse 8, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Throughout Paul's Christian life now, Paul counts, now as of this writing here, Paul counts all fleshly advantages, not only the religious ones, but all advantages among his losses. He describes his current ongoing life and says that all that he had that was an advantage to him is lost to him. He considers all his benefits, his advantages, loss, damage, strike-offs on his life report card. He calls them dung, refuse, something to be thrown away from the sight of men. And now the things, since he uses the word all, we're going to have to rein it in a little bit and say, okay, what, what's included in all these things that someone like Paul might have confidence in? And I'm sure you can find more, but I find at least three directions that this confidence in the flesh can go. First of all, confidence before God for righteousness, and that's what we were just talking about for all these minutes. But then secondly, toward men, reputation, the way we appear before men. And then thirdly, the way we appear to ourselves, our self-esteem, what seems to give us a sense of well-being, confidence in the flesh toward God toward men, toward our own hearts, our own selves. And we've, we've talked about this confidence in the flesh toward God, righteousness. It's utterly rejectable. There's no reason to put our trust in ourselves for righteousness before God because it's only to be had in Christ, and it comes as a free gift. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, and, and we'll look at it again, and, and Lord willing, later as well in another message, but let me just read verse Uh, Verse 9, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. No need to trust in our own righteousness before God. There's a great gift that he gives to all those who trust in Christ. But what about toward men? Paul says, I count, present tense, all fleshly confidence as loss. Now, includes his confidence before men. We can try to be approved, to impress others by being respectable, honorable, admirable. This can be religious, but still directed toward men, like a Pharisee with long robes and a pious face trying to look good before others. Or it can be a fleshly impressing of others with worldly or even sinful manners and activities. We might call it getting attention. Is your life made up of getting attention? from other people. What is most of Facebook and social media except getting attention? In itself, it's just a platform. But what do we do on it? Is your life made up of obtaining gadgets and things for the only purpose of being in style, up to date, so that your friends can see what you have? Uh, Trying to impress other people is a great snare. And it's vain. It's fine to have a career. It's fine to have good education. It's good to have your own business if you can. But oh, our flesh can take those things and try to impress other people or think that we do impress other people. We can take those good gifts of God and turn them into snares that swallow up our life, destroy our joy and strength in serving God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And this this fleshly confidence, this desire to impress men can take the form of the fear of man and prevent us from serving God as we should and as we would. It can be like a brick wall in the way of following Jesus. Think of those, 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 those rulers in the book of John in chapter 12. It says that among the chief rulers also many believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. It is a hard thing for me to ask myself the question, why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Why do I not do certain things? And why do I do certain things? And sometimes I look in and I think, you know, maybe it was just because I wanted people to see that. Or I didn't want people to see that. And what is that for? It's rubbish. It's trash. We are dying creatures all of all the people that look at us are dying creatures. All of us in this room will all be gone within a hundred years, and most of us will be gone within a lot less than that. And we we're just we're here for a short time. We're going to eternity. God has given us great work to do. He's given us a great life to live, and he's given us power to live it. Why are we worried about what people see and the way people think of us? Paul says, yea. Doubtless I count all things loss. Have you crucified your desire for the approval of other people? Does impressing other people make you spend your money, your time, your energy? Is the fear of what someone might think of you standing between you and obeying Christ? Now there's another subpart of this subpart. There's another there's another kind of confidence in the flesh that is toward men and it's, it, it's directed toward what people think of us, but it's religious too. This religion thing, it affects all of the way that we think. It goes down deep into our hearts. We can often do visible actions of religious importance that we're supposed to do, but we can be tempted to do them looking for the approval of men or after we've done them, thinking, oh, how people must have seen me and they must have observed what I did. And, and Our obedience of God should be simple actions of obedience out of love for God and love for others. But our flesh hijacks it and turns it into a little parade of fleshly glory. Preaching is really a great temptation in that way. We should pray for those who preach. Pray for me. Pray for our pastor. Pray for all. So many fall into vanity and into pride, and and that's why there's that that warning in the qualifications for elders, not a novice, that's being lifted up with pride, you fall into the condemnation of the devil. Many times, those of us who are especially careful in obedience to Christ, our holy lifestyle might stir up persecution, but more often than not, it stirs up appreciation from the world. When we get our life in order by God's grace, when we live a clean and honorable life, some will flatter us. Oh, you're doing so well. Oh, you have such a nice family. Pretty soon you start to believe it. Uh, the world thinks I'm great stuff. Yeah, we don't watch those movies. We have a big family. We wear modest clothes. We look clean. We look orderly. Our kids are well behaved. All the things, we can talk about the things we used to do. Not the things we do, do, because everything we do now is good. Paul says, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss. Never take God's great gifts of grace. Those are gifts of grace. It's wonderful to live a clean and orderly life. It's a great adornment to the gospel. It exalts God in the earth. It makes his name beautiful in the earth. He designed it that way. He wants us to live a holy life but never turn that into an idol. If you do, God might cast it in the dirt and take it away from you. So fleshly confidence might be directed toward God, might be directed toward others, and then also just in our own mind and heart, we just feel good about ourselves. We exalt ourselves. But my brethren, if we lift ourselves up for some good thing that we see in ourselves, we can never sing with Isaac Watts. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Instead, we'll really be translating it to, of course he would give his sacred head for such a wonderful person as I. And that is idolatry. It leads to complacency, coldness, apathy. We're good we've arrived. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've got it. If anybody wants some righteousness, I've got more than enough to share with everybody else because it's all in me. The little Jesus we profess is just a helper on our path to self-fulfillment. Paul says, no, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So not only should we follow Paul's example in putting away our confidence in any fleshly thing, but we must follow also his example in putting confidence in Christ and specifically in union with him. Verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. In verses 8 through 12, we have the fuel for that rejoicing in the Lord that he talked about in verse 1. This section, verses 8 through 12, shows us why a man with the best credentials in the world, Paul, would throw them all away. This section gives us Christ. It tells us about our experience of union with Christ. And maybe in the future we'll return to this passage, so I'll kind of just open the treasure chest and flash a few diamonds at you. And then we'll come back to it and look through it more in the future if the Lord wills. But there are two aspects to union with Christ here in this excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, and as he unfolds it in verses 9 through 12. There's a legal aspect, something that's true about us, outside of us, in union with Christ, legal union with him. Paul says in verse 9, and I've already read it, but we'll read it here, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God, by faith. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, lived a sinless life of perfect obedience to the law of God. He committed no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, not only so that he would not have to pay for his own sins, but to, for the purpose of earning for us a positive righteousness. This righteousness, which is of God by faith, is not just a removal of our sins, pardon, it's a glorious deposit of his perfect righteousness His perfect character, his perfect actions, his glorious obedience of God's law, it's his deposit to our account. The deposit to the account of the one who believes in Jesus. God, if you are in Christ, God does not look at you as a pardoned criminal. That would be glorious. But he looks at you as righteous as he is. I can't say that right. We can't praise him enough for that, that he would look at us and see Christ that he would look at us and approve us with the approval that he approves himself with. We deserve to have his judgment, his condemnation to spend eternity from this moment in the burning fires of hell. But God the Father looks upon his people and he sees us with a righteousness not our own, but Christ. Amen. He approves us with that approval he approves himself with and that's amazing. And if the Lord wills, we'll look at that again in the future. But then there's an experiential aspect, not only a legal aspect to our union with Christ, but experiential. This is a real-time, on-the-ground experience of daily living. And that's exciting. Yes. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, winning Christ, in verse 8, they're not academic and intellectual activities. They're experiential. Verses 10 through 12, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's experience. And the fellowship, that's experience. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable, experience, unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. This is all experience. So back to verse 8, as we've seen that 9 through 10 show us that he's talking about experience. When he talks about knowledge in verse 8, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's also experience. It's an experiential knowledge. And as... As preachers point out all the time, the word know and knowledge in Scripture usually is deeper than simply gathering some educational topics, just some propositional collection of information. To know Christ is more than to be able to write a book about him. And that's why the Lord Jesus in John chapter 17 said that eternal life is to know the only true God in Jesus Christ see he sent. <clears throat> so Paul, in verse 8, we could summarize verse 8 like this. I consider all my gains as losses so I can have experiential knowledge of Christ as much as possible and gain Christ. Everything that was gained to me, I counted loss so I could make Christ my gain. And when we hear Paul say, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus, my Lord. And when we think about all the different kinds of confidence in the flesh we can have, all the earthly things that might give us meaning or satisfaction in life, and we see that Paul says, I count them but loss. We might think, ah, what that means is Paul is quitting all his earthly activities so he can hold himself up in a cave and study the Bible and pray and learn more about Jesus. No. That would be a misunderstanding of the word no. Paul is not simply addressing an educational issue. He's not saying, I want the education of Christ. I want to fill my mind with facts about Christ. No, that's not it. Now, it includes that beautifully, and Paul did hold himself up sometimes. He talks about prayer. He talks about reading the word. He tells Timothy to read, give himself to reading, To know Christ means to live in the full experience of union with Christ. It starts with and includes knowing the facts, understanding the truth of Christ, but it goes beyond theories and principles to life. Paul's saying, I want to know and experience Christ, the living Christ, the power of Christ's resurrection, fellowship with Christ in his suffering. I want to talk to him in prayer and hear him talk to me in the word. I want to suffer for the advancement of his kingdom like he did. I want to, his suffering for atonement is complete. Christ is not not looking for someone to join him in paying for the sins of the world. Not at all. His work is done in that sense. But his suffering for the kingdom to be brought in is being accomplished in us. Paul says, I want to join him in suffering for the kingdom. I want to experience the, the, the giving up of myself for the good of others and for the glory of God and then experiencing the power of resurrection raising me up around me in the raising up of other sinners to know Christ and live for Christ and in myself mortifying sin vivifying the graces of the spirit and living in his power so Paul certainly the Christian life includes waiting for heaven and learning about God But it's much more than that. It means right now, whatever you're doing. Right now, you're listening to a sermon, and I'm delivering one. But right now, our life should be seeking to experience union with Christ. It should be, Lord, how can I experience your suffering and your power of your resurrection right now, where I am, what I'm doing? Paul's emphasis on this experiential aspect of knowledge of Christ is evident in how he names Jesus Christ here in this verse 8. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord. The Lord. God's promised anointed one, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, was Paul's Lord. Remember back there on the Damascus Road, like when Paul crashed into the dust and all his religious baggage and fleshly credentials was shattered around him. He heard a voice that demanded his full attention. And his response was, Who art thou, Lord? The one who arrests you by his word, shackles you up by his spirit, and blocks you in your hot pursuit of sin is the Lord, the King, the boss. Christ Jesus, my Lord. But he doesn't just say the Lord, he says, My Lord. And this this is covenant language. To call God or Christ my comes from the Old Testament, it's all through the Old Testament and to the New Testament. The only way we can do that is by God's great covenant of mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is covenant language, marriage language. The great king of heaven and earth has come down from heaven, like Paul said in Philippians 2, which we didn't look at, and he didn't consider his home in heaven, his station, as the glorious son of God, something to be held on to at all costs. He came down for Paul. He was formed and nurtured as a precious, helpless baby in the womb of his blessed mother, Mary, For Paul. He was born, grew, and learned. For Paul. And for you if you're in Christ. He lived the life Paul should have lived. He then died the awful death Paul should have died. Then he was buried and lay still and cold in the grave where Paul should have lain for his sins. And then he rose again from the dead, conquering Satan and death and hell for Paul. And for you if you're in Christ. And then he ascended up in heaven to do what? Well, so that when the right day came, he would open heaven and say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And with that voice, the king of Israel was calling his elect sheep, Paul, out of the wilderness. The, the son of man was going to seek and save that Paul which was lost. And now Paul, when he thinks back at Christ and what he's done for him, he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why I gave up everything, and that's why I want to know him. Because the King of Heaven did all of this for me. Did you meet the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever met Him? Did He tell you of His love for sinners like you? Did you ever hear the great works that He did for sinners? Did you ever hear of His sinless life and perfect righteousness, His cruel death on behalf of sinners, and His glorious resurrection for them too? Did you ever hear the great words that he recorded for sinners? Like, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Did he ever draw you sweetly to himself? Did he do it? He, the king of heaven, did he ever stop what he was doing? He didn't, but just that kind of language we can use. Did he ever interrupt his schedule and call your name? Because if he did, then you should drop it all and say, I want to know him. Amen. If you heard his voice, then you know what I'm talking about. There's a sweet transaction between the soul and Christ. It takes different forms. Some of us were more emotional. Some of us less. Some of us knew we were getting saved. Some of us thought we were going crazy. Some of us had no clue what was going on. We just knew that we heard Christ's word and we loved it. Yes. Amen. But, did the majesty and love of Christ ever astonish you so much that you could count everything else loss for him? Yes. Did it draw you away from every other confidence and leave only one confidence in its place Christ? Yes. He's alive and I love him. Amen. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Meeting Christ was like a train wreck to the old Saul. He's dead. There wasn't anything left. Nothing was lost, it was rubbish. Christ meeting Saul was the end of Saul and the beginning of a new Saul. Did that ever happen to you? Or did you just tack on a little religion and it's hard to keep up with? That's miserable. It's miserable. Now all Paul wants to do is know Jesus. What does it look like to seek the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord? Paul is very practical Paul is not a monk. He doesn't go in a cave and hide out and read his Bible and pray all day. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Paul loves other people. He's always with people. Read the book of Acts. Read the epistles. What is he doing? He's with the Jews. He's with the Gentiles. He's with the believers. He's with the elders. He's with other apostles. He's always on the move. He's always doing stuff. And what else does he do? Well, he's like a pastor, so he just preaches. No, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, he stays up at night and sows tents because the Lord Jesus said it's better to give than to receive, so he tells the Ephesian elders, that's what I do. I work. I I labor in the day with the Lord's people and then I work at night with my hands. So knowing Christ, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ doesn't mean some kind of detachment from this life. It means understanding that Christ came into this world. He lived here, and we seek to live like him. We seek to live in embracing the suffering that comes with serving others, embracing the suffering that comes with serving the kingdom of God, and saying, I want to participate in that suffering. Lord, what does it mean to have Pharisees shout at you? What does it mean for people to take up stones and throw them at you? Lord, let me have some of that. Not just for my own, not so I can chalk it down and be more proud about it, not so I can brag about it at church, but so that I can say, I know what Christ experienced. I am also serving what he served, the kingdom of God, because I also want to experience the resurrection. I also want to have his power at work in me, killing sin, putting on righteousness, seeing souls around me raised to life. Don't you want to see people come to life in Christ? Don't you want to see the wicked repent of their sins and love Christ For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, it meant that Paul prayed. He was given to prayer. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Paul read. He spent time in the Word. He loved his Lord. For Paul, all of life, the daily, the mundane, eating and drinking, whatever it was, it meant seeking Christ. Seeking to know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings. What about you? The beautiful thing about valuing the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, is that it is universally applicable to every believer. As believers, uh, as preachers, sometimes we preach a message for the men, not for the ladies. Sometimes we preach messages about elders, and sometimes we preach messages for pew sitters, well, God forbid, church members. But sometimes we preach for singles and sometimes for married people. But this message is for every believer in every situation, every spiritual condition, every physical condition, every walk of life. Maybe you've never been married. You can't serve God by raising a family. But you have a great calling from God to pursue the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord, in his suffering and in his resurrection. Maybe you are stricken with strange and mysterious providences that bring you sickness, health issues, family problems, Things that go on for years, and you never, you, you, you don't have what you would call a calling in life except to try to survive. What do you do? Live pursuing the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You'll at know, the people around you who have what they might call a career, if they put their trust in that, they're wasting their time anyway. They are also supposed to be seeking the knowledge of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, and to know his resurrection, to know his sufferings. Be conformable to his death. It's for all of us. Every Christian who is in this room today, this is something by the power of the Spirit of God you can do. And you must do. You can start right now. Well, you can continue right now because if you're in Christ, you've been doing it. And you can continue on. You can excel in it. And that's what God will talk to you about on the day of judgment. He's not going to ask you about how successful you were at work. He's going to ask you, did you pursue the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord. What is changing a diaper on a little child, but washing their feet like Christ did, as an expression of our union with Christ in his suffering in order to love other people and serve them in their need? What is a man in an office working through another pile of forms, but an instance of union with Christ in his faithfulness to his Father who sent him? as that employee seeks to be faithful to the one who gave him that work to do and who's over him. And Paul says, servants, submit yourselves to your masters. What is a wife submitting herself to her husband, but a woman seeking a deeper experience of union with Christ in, in, as Christ subordinated himself to the Father so she subordinates herself to her husband? What is a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, but a man seeking the excellence of the knowledge of Christ in his self-sacrificing love, for his bride, and you can apply it in every area of life, parents and their children, friends to friends, uh, Christians as they seek the lost, every experience of life. What is it about? Seeking the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if it's not, if you can't find that in it, then quit doing it and go do something else. (laughs) We fall far short of this. And and that's why I think at the end of chapter 3 here, in, in verse 18, Well, verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Why did Paul weep? What's the big deal, Paul? I mean, yeah, you know, there's lots of wicked people around you. Why are you crying about these people who are just thinking about worldly things? Paul says... (laughs) there's treasure here in christ and they're going after dog's meat they're going after dung they're going after filth it it, religious filth maybe maybe cleaned up filth maybe it looks good maybe it's good work maybe it's a nice career whatever but they're not pursuing it for christ they're minding earthly things made paul cry should make us cry too So what is in your life that threatens the pursuit of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord? Sin will get in the way. Time wasters will get in the way. Let all the streams of your love be directed into one channel, the pursuit of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord. So brethren, is Christ Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, so great to you that you're ready to part with everything else? Have you thrown away all your hopes and dreams of meaning and purpose in life so you can pursue Christ? And are the only hopes and dreams left the ones that help you pursue Christ? And that might mean carnal earthly things. That might mean, for many of us, God has called us to work. God has called us to an education. God has We do live in this world, but why do we do it? What is it for? For Paul building tents, he wasn't trying to become the greatest tent maker in the world and you know write books about tents and, and become like some... Some famous tent guy, you know, Paul the tent builder. Although he might have become that, we don't know. That's not, it's it's not that significant. It's gone. What we do know, he pursued Christ. And even in his tent sewing, he loved Christ. He experienced the love of Christ as he worked late in the night. His fingers hurt, his eyes hurt, his back hurt. And he thought, tomorrow I'll sell this tent and I'll be able to share some of this money with that poor guy down on the street. And, and he loved Christ in it. It was, it was a Christian thing. It was life in Christ. Do you have confidence in anything besides Christ? If you are without Christ today, if you have your confidence in the flesh, if you have your confidence in your works, if you don't have any confidence, run to Christ. He is a great Savior. He is a living Savior. If he was just a set of propositions, I could tell you, well, you've got to memorize them and think about them and try to, try, to, try to remember all of them. But no, he's a living Savior. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent, turn from earthly mindedness. Turn from sin. Turn from carnal religion. Turn to Christ. Love Christ. Trust Christ, his righteousness, it's free. He gives it as a free gift. Amen. Are you now seeking to live in union with Christ with the in union with the living Christ? Is daily life to you a glorious opportunity to experience the suffering of Christ and the power of his resurrection for the love of God and the service of others? Continue. Continue and grow in it. Let that be your daily pursuit, your moment by moment pursuit. Let's start right now. Let it be so, for his great name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our great and glorious Father in heaven, Lord, wash away my words, and I pray that your words would remain. Lord, if we don't remember anything else, help us to remember to pursue the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord Jesus, we will all stand before you very soon. Oh, Lord, it doesn't matter what else we have done, but whether we have known Christ. Give us Christ. Give us Christ. Give us him. For his name's sake. Amen. 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 Please stand. Paul says in chapter 4 of Philippians, and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Amen. You are dismissed.